Grace to you in peace and welcome. You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia. My name is Ben Brannan, Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults. And each week it is our hope that from the pulpit, God will twist and mold our words to land upon the listener's ears in a meaningful way that will inspire faith, encourage hope, and cultivate love in action. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here with us. Please subscribe and share, and I pray that through our words, you may grow closer to God. Would you pray with me? Grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I just mentioned, we are in the book of James for today. We're in the second chapter, starting at verse 1, going to verse 10, and then skipping ahead a bit to verse 14 through 17. So James 2, verses 1 through 10, and 14 through 17. Listen now for God's word to us this day. My brothers and sisters, Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Skipping to 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He stepped out in faith. He heard of the great things the church did in this community. He even met many of the church members while they were volunteering at places like the Rescue Mission and the Presbyterian Community Center. He thought they were all very nice and very warm, always smiling, welcoming, and approachable. He even had lunch with Jerry, one of the church members, 
at the Roanoke Mission one day. They sat beside each other and talked about all sorts of things. Growing up, memories of family and friends, the sports they played when they were young, and the sports they still enjoy to watch. The things each of them do for fun and the ways faith has shaped who they are. It was a lovely conversation, a conversation that was deep and open and personal. The man explained, I believe faith is what keeps you going when times are hard. Faith is what got me through the death of my wife. His lunch partner, Jerry, replied, how long ago did you lose your wife? It was a while back, actually, 16 years now, I believe. She developed a, a serious illness about 20 years ago, and the, the doctors couldn't figure it out. They tried several different treatment options, but nothing seemed to work. So we carried on best we could. Jerry, shaking his head in sympathy, said, It must have been hard on both of you. The man continued, Yeah, it was. Trying to manage the medical bills, juggling work, and helping her. You know, I had two jobs at the time, and she even had to keep working off and on while she was sick. It was the hardest times of our lives. That is, until she got worse a few years later. Jerry really didn't know where this was going, but asked, what happened? Well, we went back to the doctors, and they ran some tests, and then admitted her to the hospital. It turned out to be some form of cancer. Jerry knew a thing or two about cancer diagnoses. Yeah, my mom battled cancer for a while. It was tough on my dad, too. They were both retired when she fell sick, you know, living at the lake. But like you say, faith is what keeps us going during the hard times in life. Turning their focus to their plates of cafeteria spaghetti, they sat in silence for a few moments. With all that was being shared, silence was needed. Then Jerry jumped back in, well, how are you doing now? <laughs> That's a hard question to answer, the man said. When my wife died, I didn't know what to do. I still don't really know what to do. Now I'm back and forth out of places like this, trying to simply survive, really. The man let out a half-hearted chuckle. And Jerry then said, I'm a member of the downtown church. I'm there almost every Sunday. I would love for you to come worship with us. Their conversation then turned to more superficial topics, you know, the surface topics that keep things light. They both really didn't want to go deep again. A few months passed, and Jerry was head usher for the 11 o'clock service one Sunday. He did this quite often. He was an elder of the church, was chair of the missions committee for the second time and was a leader in his church in many other ways. A man dressed in his Sunday best came through the sanctuary doors. Jerry greeted him with a handshake, a welcomed him, and gave him a bulletin. He didn't recognize the man who just walked in, so he asked if he was visiting. The visitor, who was wearing a double-breasted suit from Tom Ford, a pressed shirt and a matching silk tie, said, I'm in town for business and visiting today. Jerry replied, well then, welcome. It's nice to have you with us today. Then offered to walk him to his seat. 
Walking down the aisle, Jerry introduced the visitor to several other members as they were finding their way to their assigned seats. Jerry took the visitor down toward the front and offered him the seat on the pulpit side of the sanctuary and introduced him to those members who were sitting around him. And then he returned to his post at the sanctuary doors. A few moments later, another man walked up to the church. This man was not wearing a double-breasted suit from Tom Ford, a pressed shirt, and a matching silk tie. He was wearing a dirty T-shirt, jeans that were two sizes too big, worn-out boots, and a baseball cap. Actually, these were the only clothes he owned. Jerry asked, Can I help you? The man replied, Where do I go for the service? Jerry, hesitating, pointed toward the sanctuary. Stepped out in faith, the man began to walk into the sanctuary. But Jerry quickly caught up to him and said, We're about to start. Just find a place in the back so as to not disturb the other people. The man quietly walked to the last pew and sat down in the corner. I offered this modern version of the hypothetical James poses in our passage for today to help us imagine the context of what James is actually saying. As I told that story, did you think about the doors of this sanctuary? Did you think about your assigned seats? Could you see the cafeteria at the rescue mission? The plastic tables and the foldable chairs? As you listened, who did you picture? Is there a Jerry you know of? Have you been Jerry? What person came to mind wearing the suit? And what person came to mind wearing the dirty t-shirt and baseball cap? Who were you in the story? And how did it make you feel? I also tell this contemporary and illustrative version of James's hypothetical for us to consider more deeply the where and how and why we operate like Jerry, open and vulnerable at one location, suspicious and biased at another. The number one critique, I believe, of Christianity today is that our words and our actions are not consistent. This is not helped when people who loudly and proudly bear the identity of Christian are helpful and compassionate to neighbors one day, then threaten and ridicule another the next. And too often it is the neighbor that is foreign, poor, struggling, or happened to have a different skin tone. Partiality to one person over another, to one that is higher over the one that is lower, is not consistent to the message of faith and Christ-like behavior. So how does our faith govern our actions? Well, faith without works is dead, James says. These two go hand in hand. Faith inspires our works. Works is our faith in action. They're not mutually exclusive. You cannot have one without the other. But you might say, wait a minute, Ben, wait a minute. What's this talk about works righteousness? Isn't faith a gift of God's grace, not works? Is this not a foundation of our Reformed tradition? Of course, 
Following the teachings of Apostle Paul, we believe we are saved by grace through faith because no one is good enough to be saved based on actions because faith is a gift and works will never earn God's love. But faith that is too small that it doesn't produce an operative response to God's grace is half-hearted. Half-hearted discipleship, half-hearted faith, as James cautions followers then, is easily swayed by temptation and desire. Temptation to favor those who are like us, those whom we wish we were, those whom we aspire to become, over and against the people whose situation might make us uncomfortable in our good fortune and privilege. This then promotes our desire to remain comfortable, the desire to consume and gain fame, the desire to experience only life's ups, and the desire to be insulated from life's downs, to be shielded from the wounds of the world. James urges his readers to adopt a wholehearted faith, one that is lived out, one that is acted upon, and one that is bestowed to those whom God has shown particular care, the widows and orphans. James said, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom that God has promised. Wholehearted faith is works as a grace response. A faith that is alive in you will come alive in and through your actions. And I've only been here since March, but here at Second, I have seen evidence of this wholehearted faith in action. The local relief offering surpassed the $90,000 mark this past week. This is financial giving over and beyond your normal pledging amounts. I have seen donations of clothing and furniture go to immigrant and refugee families seeking shelter here in the valley. I have witnessed members of this congregation give up their lunch hour and even more to pack snacks for Roanoke School's Pack-A-Snack program so kids can eat during the pandemic and summer months. I have seen youth give up a Saturday, give up a Saturday to serve at the rescue mission, to cook and serve food, to organize the Presbyterian Community Center and help clean out the intersection to welcome people back into that space. You have pledged over $1.1 million to the Mission Build campaign, and you have further pledged a ministry of presence, which quite possibly can go far and beyond the monetary value. You have pledged a mission of presence with all four of these mission projects. And behind-the-scenes work, the work that is not known, Many volunteer their time here at the church and for our mission partners and other nonprofits in the Roanoke region and give in so many other ways that I am not even aware of. Friends, this is wholehearted faith, sacrificially working for others. It is a labor of faith. 
It is interesting to have this passage in James paired in the lectionary with the story of Jesus and the Gentile Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. There, Jesus set out to the region of Tyre. A Gentile woman came before him seeking healing for her daughter, who was possessed by a demon. His response to her, let the children be fed first. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Let me translate that for you if you didn't catch that. Who do you think you are coming to ask me, Jesus, to heal your daughter? Aren't you a Gentile, a Syrophoenician even, and you want me to heal your daughter before all the children of Israel are healed? It's not fair to focus on you, the outsider, the beggar instead of my people. Or to use our contemporary version of the scenario in James, you are a Gentile woman. You need to sit in the back of the sanctuary and please don't touch anything. When Jesus says this to her, the Gentile woman responds, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus is being caught by his own assumptions and his own prejudice. Did Jesus have prejudice? His biases and preconceived understanding of who he is to heal are called into question. Jesus' response may make us uncomfortable, and the uncomfortable nature of it tempts us further to sanitize the encounter and protect Jesus. We are confronted as Jesus is. It is a confrontation that leads to change. A confrontation that leads to the daughter being healed and leads to a new expansive ministry that includes Gentiles in the fullness of Christ's healing. So how are we to put our faith into action? How do we keep an awareness of our innate biases we own, consciously or subconsciously, in order to be fully present with others? We follow Jesus' lead. You see, he didn't avoid the conversation with the woman. He stayed in it. He responded and engaged in dialogue. Then Jesus stated his own thoughts and perspective and listened intently to what the woman had to say. And in that dialogue, in that confrontation, though uncomfortable, they were open with each other and open to each other. And in doing so, both were challenged and both were changed. To be open to change is to stand humbly engaged with the world. One weekday afternoon, I was downtown outside the Roanoke Chamber building, dropping something off for Valerie. I was putting whatever it was in her car and a man walked behind me. We made eye contact. I noticed his scuffed up tennis shoes. I noticed the holes in his shirt. I noticed the rips in his jeans and I noticed I started making assumptions. Assumptions of who he was, who he is, why he looks that way and what happened. Seeing the North Carolina plate on the car, he asked, hey man, you from Charlotte? Yeah, just moved up here. 
He continued about how his mom lived down there for a while, and after some small chit-chat, we were about to go our separate ways, but then he said, man, I live on the streets. Don't do any drugs or, or drink, and do you happen to have some spare change? I thought to myself, perfect, way to rope me in. Talking about North Carolina and Charlotte, and here you go. I don't carry any cash, but I did have some change in the center console, and I gave it to him. Thanks, man. What do you do, by the way? <laughs> well, I'm a pastor at Second Presbyterian Church, just over there on Mountain Avenue. He didn't know where it was, but I had to jump at the chance, right? Why don't you come by one Sunday? We would love to have you worship with us. He replied, man, I don't own a suit. I don't have any nice clothes. Is your church welcoming to people like me? I sure hope so. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.